0: Hi, I'm Natalie. I'm Emily, and I'm Jessica. And we're the dangerous liberal lady preachers. We are just... three United Methodist clergy
1: women from upstate New York, and we're finding a different way to do spirituality.
0: Sweet. And we are recording and we are the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. And today, me and Jess have the honor of interviewing Beth Quick, who we have known for a long time because of all of these various connections through Upper New York. But it is wonderful, wonderful to have you with us, my dear.
2: Thank you. I'm very excited to be here
0: Yeah, totally. So, the first place I always like to start in these interviews is to invite you to share as much as you'd like to with us about your spiritual journey.
2: Great. Um, So, I am uh, an an elder in the Upper New York Conference, and I'm currently appointed to attend school at Drew University. Um, That's been kind of a path to to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, My spiritual journey, I grew up in in Westernville, New York, which is a little two street town, uh, just outside of Rome. And, um, you know, it was where my, my grandparents lived around the corner and we mm-hmm. all went to the, the Methodist church, which was, you know, the real hub of life in Westernville. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, everything about my social life was uh, through church. And it was, you know, a tiny little country church Um, is a church that really focused on Bible memorization. So I was learning my scripture verses and, uh, but it was also a place where questions were okay. Um, And so, you know, when I asked my Sunday school teacher, you know, what about creation and, and the dinosaurs and like if the earth is created in seven days and the dinosaurs are supposed to be all these years before humans and... Uh, i didn't get shut down for questions like that instead i got invited to think about you know god and time and god's time isn't like our time and um, i i think that that climate of being able to ask questions about faith and encouraging encouraging that was really um, helpful to my spiritual journey when i was like in uh, sixth grade was when we we changed churches we started going to rome uh, first united methodist church and bruce webster was the pastor there and he was just a really significant person in my spiritual journey because as i started to um, want to take my faith on for myself he was extremely supportive of me getting involved in whatever i wanted to be involved in he was really good at sharing his wisdom and authority in ways that i have come to really appreciate over the years, as I've seen maybe some other folks that are less excited about sharing wisdom and authority uh, with people. Um, Bruce really uh, was wonderful at doing that. So he's a big influence on my spiritual growth. And another significant impact for me was uh, my older brother, who's six years older than me, uh, who went to a, a pretty conservative Christian college. And he started college when I was starting junior high. And after one semester, he came home and declared himself both a philosophy major and an atheist. <laughs> and I was, uh, that just like flipped my world upside down as a, you know, 12, 13 year old. And um, the benefit of it for me was that I I started being really uh intentional he loved to debate you know philosophy major with all the wisdom of a college freshman He loved to come home and have debates with me and i realized i had to like figure out what i thought and why and um, we have a really great relationship and and we've both changed and grown spiritually um, but that was a really big influence influence on my my spiritual journey uh, so then you know by the time i was in high school and looking at college, um, I was already thinking about ministry of some kind. i kind of gone from camping ministry to youth ministry to um, pastoral ministry. And it was one of those kind of straight from college to seminary to the local church uh, sort, of, sort of people. And uh, yeah, spent 17 years in pastoral ministry before i was feeling like i was headed in any direction and uh, left to go back to school and that was three years ago right in that world changing time of starting with the covid pandemic and changing careers and et cetera. but i think yeah. those are the main things that when, it, when when i think about my spiritual journey
0: uh, yeah of course really stand out. yeah of course i mean it's whatever it is to you you know and I don't think we spend enough time really talking about them. Um, I, I, is your older brother still an atheist?
2: I don't think he would use that label anymore. Um, mm-hmm. I think what label he might give himself varies a little bit. Um, he's actually attended a, um, a Unitarian Universalist um, church for a while he also spent some time at a, a Zen Buddhist center. And mm-hmm. um, I think he would say he, he, I don't think he would use a label like spiritual but not religious, but mm-hmm. he might fall into that spiritual but not religious category don't
0: yeah, I, I asked because um, having an older sibling um, to kind of go through their own sort of deconstruction journey and identify with the word atheist is also part of my spiritual journey. It's not as big of an age difference, but my older sister, Cassie, um, started identifying as an atheist, I want to say in high school. Um, and she's three years older than me. And um, yeah, it... it, it it's just you know these different directions that when you all are in the same family you can end up taking and neither like neither of my sisters identify as christian anymore cassie still identifies with the word atheist um but also she has found a home with unitarian universalists so she's like a uu atheist you know and yeah. like it, it's just yeah. that evolves over time in your life when you decide you know what your bigger priorities are and what your beliefs are based in and around and who your people are, you know? Um, So, I mean, we just kind of went in, you know, we went in opposite directions. We were sort of charged up by our experiences in the same church. And she headed in the direction of this stuff isn't for me. And I headed in the direction of, I need to, I clearly, I need to be a leader here because the people who are in charge don't know what they're doing. So, (laughs) <laughs> and you know 30 years later here we are
2: absolutely I I mean you know it particularly for me like when I was looking for colleges was a big influence for me because I remembered you know brother went to a conservative Christian school and that particular uh brand of Christianity he struggled with so much that I felt like that was something that had a you know, a big influence on the the path that he took. So when I was looking for schools, I I, I went in wanting to major in youth ministry, and uh, you know there weren't colleges that were really offering youth ministries that weren't you know Christian colleges uh, of a fairly conservative tone. So uh, you know this is where Bruce Webster was another um, mm-hmm. you know influence again because he started telling me about United Methodist affiliated schools. And I got introduced to Ohio Wesleyan, which is where I ended up going to college. And um, it was a very deliberate choice to set myself in a different sort of environment than my brother had been in, where I would be able to be around folks who shared my faith commitment, but, but not in a way that was hopefully mis- going <laughs> to send me running for the hills. Um, yeah, so it, it, those things definitely are paths. Uh, influence each other so much
0: yeah totally totally um so I'm curious if you have a war story in the ministry that uh that you would want to share with us sometimes we do and they're good ones
2: (laughs) I I was thinking about that um I I certainly have some war stories uh some of them (laughs) some of them are for podcasts and some of them are for podcasts oh I, I understand I, <laughs> I I'm thinking though of a um, actually an interesting situation I'm in now this this summer I'm spending most of my summer preaching um, at First United Church of East Syracuse uh, where while well, they are between pastors they you know alternate between Presbyterian and United Methodist clergy and that's a place that I served earlier in my ministry so I'm in this kind of rare opportunity of temporarily landing back at a um, congregation that I've I've served in before. And, you know, when I first got there, um, they they told me, you know, we're united. We really think of ourselves as united. Um, But within a a couple months of being there, I knew whether everybody was Methodist or Presbyterian. (laughs) You know, they really strongly identified still actually with those traditions um, that they had come from. And there were a lot of places where some of the tensions showed up, um, and worship life was one of those. And and they had made a lot of you know decisions to try to carefully blend their traditions. Like they use a United States hymnal, they say debts and debtors in the Lord's prayer, and they you know try to balance these things. And one of the interesting places that that balance came out was in uh, celebrating Holy Communion because they would alternate a method by which they would receive communion every month. They would either receive it um, in the in the pews with um, servers bringing the communion to them in the pews, or they would come and kneel at the rail, or they would receive by intinction in the aisle, and they would rotate it to try to cover everybody's um, particular traditions. But the communion liturgy was um, also sort of a, a, a space to navigate um, how to handle what what kind of liturgy would you would use from which tradition? And of course, they're really similar, but people would really resonate with whatever liturgy was from their their childhood, their background. So it was actually at that church um, that I first started using sung communion liturgies um, because it seemed to resonate with everyone's tradition um folks that were looking for more contemporary uh, worship styles and people who were traditionalists in uh and liking a little more formal liturgy and folks that were from Methodist or Presbyterian backgrounds if we were doing a sung communion liturgy that seemed to sort of overcome the differences and really allow us to focus on communion mm-hmm. uh, so uh, that's what I think of um it's not quite a war story, but it's a um one of the ways where I felt like uh there was a conflict that we were facing that we found a really meaningful way not to just over kind of overcome that conflict but to transform it into something that we actually sort of all enjoyed better than what was happening before um so I, I really was, and that really, of course, became a big, a big thing for me going forward from there. So I was really thankful that I was able to have that, that space in that congregation.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, and I, that it, your, your sung Communion Liturgies, that's one of the things I wanted to make sure that I brought up in this space. So I have your book. I'm a really big fan Um <laughs> And so, yeah, no, everybody who's listening to this, um, yeah, like Beth is a genius. So just, you, you have to know that, especially when, um, we're trying to put together liturgy. And so in my case, I don't have, um, people kind of butting heads over what they want communion to look like. Uh, people are pretty much, we're we're pretty copacetic on that one, but, um, I have, I've had a bunch of people over the years say, please don't go to page 13 in the hymnal again, (laughs) or if you are going to do that, please, for heaven's sakes, not every month. Because I'm, I'm, I, I'm going to rip my ears out if I have to hear that particular liturgy word by word one more time, and even to say that you know it doesn't feel holy to them anymore, because they've heard it so many times that it, they've they've memorized the words a long time ago. They've become almost meaningless, even though they're very, me- it's very meaningful faith vocabulary, but it doesn't sound like anything anymore. And they know that nobody in the room wrote it or knows anybody who wrote it and it's you know it, it just doesn't feel like anything to them anymore so not everybody feels that way but i know a lot of people that have and also a lot of people seem to um they react that the um the the the, uh, the hymnal communion liturgies are long yeah. and if you use something different you can kind of alter the length to fit what you're doing a little bit more, so you have more control, and so the like the number one place that I ended up going when people were saying, For the love of God, don't go to the hymnal, um, was <laughs> to Beth Quick. So, yeah, to your blog, and then to just your book. When you bound all of them, it was just like, Oh my goodness, it's like Christmas. <laughs> um, I you know, Thank so like you. now, you know, the Beth Quick uh liturgy books, it's right next to the <laughs> hymnal. Um, but I've, I've used a bunch of them, and it's just very helpful. And and it's also it's it, it makes you think about the sacrament of communion in a very different way and that in a, a very musical congregation like where i'm serving eastern parkway people really appreciate being able to flex those singing muscles and yeah. and and protestants are are a little you know we're we're a little uh What's the word I'm looking for? We kind of humble brag about it. We like to sing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, our, yeah. our Roman Catholic friends don't like to sing as much as we do. A lot of our other traditions don't like to swing as much as we do, but we like to sing. Um, and and it's it, there was um, there was one that I used. It was at Advent, and it was you wrote it to um, come that long expected Jesus, I think. And yeah. when we sang that, it was so like there was something that filled the air when we did that one. It was it was almost like it was haunting but in a good way because it just brought something in that nobody was expecting it was just very wow that's really something so yes thank you you have provided us many many gifts with that
2: thank you it's been a real a real joy i you know i didn't i didn't set out to uh come up with a a a collection myself but i you know early on i had I'd kind of come across a couple of sung liturgies that others had written and I was asking for uh, other examples and, and just googling trying to find other ones that I could use and I just couldn't I couldn't find them and so I, I sort of started writing my own just out of desperation for for more options um and it's it's become a real joy to do yeah um, totally. and I, I'm totally with you on the um the wordiness of our liturgies sometimes, and mm-hmm. and how that can slow us down in in our worship spaces, and kind of take sometimes take people out. I love words. I, I'm a writer. I love writing. And but but sometimes there are too many mm-hmm. too many words, and, and it and I think there are other ways that we can help draw people in, and, and music is definitely one of those.
0: Places. Yeah, totally. Thanks,
1: thanks for the hot tip. Um, I totally love a sung liturgy. I haven't done it in forever. Like the the place where I'm at, asbury, we don't really do that stuff very often, but man, every once in a while it's very special. So thank you. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna pick up a copy of that. So
0: Oh yeah, it's available on Amazon. Yeah, and it's um in general, being able to um to say things in so being encouraged to say things in your own words, and being encouraged to play with art. Um, It's not just, it's a very helpful thing, not just for clergy people, but it's a helpful spiritual practice in general. Like, um, Beth, do you know Harold Wheat?
2: Yes. Yep. Yeah,
0: so um, he was one of the first people that we interviewed for this podcast, and um, a very, very dear friend of mine, and I literally, at this point, I would not be clergy were it not for Harold, I would have run away and joined the circus. <laughs> I would have found a circus, and I would Maybe have joined it. Another
2: option, another good option.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I, I I could be a bearded lady by now were it not for him, and um he uh, he's taught me a, a, a number of like ways to actually deepen my relationship with God. So and not just to add on to the the sort of my resume my resume of of things that I can bring to my ministry. Like oh now I'm good at this and now I'm good at this and like these are all like these are all like pulpit and meeting skills, but they have nothing to do with my actual relationship. With the divine and so one of the things he he uh brought into my life was rewriting psalms but in your own words hmm. so taking a psalm that feels particularly meaningful and like it hits a note that you're trying to get it to hit but it's not related to you so then you go and go down the you know in the same kind of the same journey that the psalmist is going on but with your life experiences instead of theirs and I did it with Psalm 137, which is about the heaviest thing we have in the Bible several years ago, because I was going By the through the waters just,
1: of Babylon, we sat uh-huh. down and we went for you, O Zion.
0: Yes, exactly. That one, the one that ends with happier, those that smash your babies, that mm-hmm. one, that one, yeah. because I, I was going through a deeply grieved time and I needed to connect with Biblical expressions of grief and anger and even anger to the point of contempt and hostility and I needed a biblical model for when you are this angry where do you go. Yeah. And the Psalms are a good place to go to that, but it helped me taking, taking that and then writing it to my own experience. So writing my own Psalm 137 was deeply healing. It it, it, it helped me actually walk through my grief and go to where, where do I go with this? And what, you know, what baby am I smashing on a rock? Like we it, like connecting with god can be very confrontational and it can be very undressing none of us want to admit that we have a baby smashing place in our hearts mm. but there yeah. but if you if you have been in a deep enough grief place then there probably is some part of you that would like to take away someone else's joy so that you could have a little bit of yours back Absolutely. and i was there so it, you know it, when we when we find these things that's how we heal you know and god grows with us i'm really i'm you know i i'm i'm very much not in my baby smashing place anymore but um i'm but i also have a much stronger relationship with god than i would ever have had before going through that experience and it, it i owed it to myself to be honest you know and Absolutely. So he taught me honesty in word. You've taught me honesty in song. Not that I'm going to sing about smashing babies, but, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I can sing about happy things.
2: I'm not sure how catchy of a tune that would be. So, you know. <laughs> um,
1: I'm I kind of glad you, you, you all brought up um, singing because um, today um, he leadeth me, our 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 organist, um, our organist pianist, wonderful, wonderful player. She played during communion, um, like a kind of transposition um, riff on um, He Leadeth Me. And um, I was just so excited because I love that song. So I was kind of like standing up to commute. We were like in the line for communion and I'm holding my baby and I'm singing it and Mm. um, kind of a little bit. And then one of the other women in the congregation was also singing along with it. So it's just so wonderful to have that place to connect with one another on these songs that we all know because we've heard them so many times. And yeah, like liturgy can like get you down and songs that you've sung a million times can just sound rote. But every once in a while, there's something magical about that connection with the divine with each other through the power of poem and song. So very cool.
2: uh, absolutely. And, you know, right now I I have um, just a season of my life that I am uh, luxuriating in, which is that I, I work in the chapel at Drew and Mark Miller is the director of the chapel, who is just pretty much the most extraordinary um, musician and person that I can think of. Uh, it's been such a joy to work with him. And You know, one of the things we've been talking about, um, I also attend church where he's the music director um, in New Jersey. And uh, of course the congregation uh, is very familiar with Mark's repertoire of music, such a uh, beautiful um, uh, composer of just this wonderful um, canon of music. Uh, They don't know some of the, uh, sort of golden oldies. Uh, so the other day we were singing in the garden, and a lot of the folks there didn't know that song. And I was, you know, talking to Mark about it and remembering a, a year that I spent as a chaplain in a, a retirement home and nursing home community, and remembering some of the folks there with um, with dementia who might not connect in any other way but if i would bring out a song like that that they had known uh it would you know just capture some place access some part of their mind where they could really engage and I was uh, talking to, with mark about the power of that and wondering with him you know when when my generation and some of the younger generations are the folks that are in retirement communities and nursing home communities what will be the music that touches those places? What, what will be the songs that everybody is singing? Uh, you know and I think Mark's hope is that he can, he can be writing some kind of music that that are those songs for people that will um, offer us some really powerful theological imagery um, but also touch our hearts in deep ways that really stays with us. Um, but it's the the power of music um, to to connect our our souls our spirits is mm-hmm. really really amazing.
0: Yeah, and Mark is he is unparalleled in his skill and his heart and how he has inspired and led through that gift.
2: He really is.
0: Yeah, he's a treasure. He's mm-hmm. a treasure.
1: When I was um, doing my supervised ministry, I was at um, the uh, long-term care facility at ECMC. um, And we were on a ward one day and all these people were just kind of sitting in the common area and they all kind of looked half asleep. And one of the chaplains said, does anyone know a song, wanna sing a song? And this woman just broke out into the most beautiful gospel rendition of precious Lord, take my hand. And suddenly everybody came alive. And then there was another woman who said, I was in Miss Buffalo contest in 1970, and she started singing "New <laughs> York, it. New York," and it was great. Love so, me. yes, absolutely, <laughs>
0: absolutely. Yeah, um, I, I found that trick to be uh, handy when I did. Um, I did some nursing home ministry when I was serving in Avon. I was leading a worship service every month, and it I, it, it was very it was it was it was a learning curve like what people were going to be able to connect with, what was even going to be relevant was tricky, but old hymns worked. Um, people people liked old hymns and and also just leaning heavier into music so less words and more music was the way to go because it, it, a lot of the people were no longer in a space to be able to mentally engage with like either a sermon or like a long prayer or something it just it, they just didn't have that ability but they could sit and just listen to music and just experience whatever they experienced with it. You have more freedom with music and you have less res- less restrictions and less judgment. It's just, you know, it this is whatever it is to you. You know, it's a it's an open meeting place. The other thing, if you're ever in a nursing home and trying to figure out how to connect with the person in front of you, bring a baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bring a baby yeah. that just that, that probably that, even
1: an animal that's yeah like exactly a or a yeah cat.
0: That, exactly that yeah. kind of thing just wakes everybody up. Nobody doesn't like puppies and babies. So if you don't have a baby, go find someone's puppy. <laughs> That works, that works. Mm -hmm. And actually, since we started talking about kittens and puppies, um, the other big thing that I wanted to make sure that we talked about with you in this space, Beth, is that you've been very passionate about creation care and fighting against uh, global warming and caring for the earth. I would love for you to talk to us about that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, I was trying to think about when my um, commitment to... Creation care emerged, and I, I I know when I was in uh, sixth grade, graduating from elementary school, we had to write our our you know our future plans in our yearbook, and I said I was going to in, a major in environmental law. I'm not sure I even knew what that was at uh, UCLA. I have no idea why I picked that school, <laughs> um, but I was already you know, I was interested already, um, you know, creation care was important to me, uh, but I, I can't, I can't trace exactly where that, that was coming from. I mean, I think I definitely grew up as a, a camp person, and I was going to Alder Skate every summer, and that was really the highlight of my life, or my weeks at camp, and I, so I certainly think some of it probably came from there, and, um, you know, just, you know, places where we were celebrating like Earth Day in school. And and it just, it just always resonated with me that we have to take care of our planet. And, uh, you know, at that time in my life, it was more like, you know, don't pollute and don't litter and and try to recycle, um, things like that. But it it has has grown for me um, from that time. And for me, a, a big, a big part of that is particularly uh, care for animals. That's really actually the focus of my Mm -hmm. um, doctoral work is um, eco justice with a a focus on animals. Um, And and that for me started um, probably when I was in in high school, that was when that was kind of first percolating, um, thinking about animals. Um, my older brother played a, a role in this again. That was another thing that he uh, kind of came, came home from college uh, with was starting to adopt a vegetarian diet. And I would certainly hear him talking about that. I will also acknowledge that uh, there was a cute boy at summer camp was <laughs> <with> a vegetarian <laughs> and, uh, and he was talking to me about it, about fishing and, I I never, I never fished again after (laughs) after that That cute boy, you know, big influence. Um, um, But, you know, over the years, I have really thought a lot about animals and their um, place in creation, their relationships to humans, um, how our relationship with animals affects our care for the earth as a whole. and. in more recent years in particular, um, I've been thinking a lot about animals and um, intersectional justice, thinking about race and gender and how we, how we construct our understanding of what it means to be human in opposition. Um, we, we decide what is human by clarifying what is not human. And all of the ways that we have done that um, as a culture have been through these kind of really problematic dualisms where um, human to be human is to be white Mm -hmm. and to be male and to be um, um, cisgender, heterosexual, Christian, and everything else is other. And we've said, you know, to be human is to be civilized and everything else is uncivilized, closer to nature. And then we just kind of lump everything else in that category. And so, you know, women and people of color and uh, queer people and animals all get animalized in this other less than ideal human category and the more that I've um, understood the way those things all work together and there's been some really great scholars that have helped me think about those things um, the even more committed I've become to um, centering thinking about animals and, and as a part of my Kind of eco-justice approach uh, because I'm really convinced that it, it really impacts just everything, that it, that it really is just very intersectional. Um, yeah, so it's just it's definitely the passion that's that's driving me, which is good because as a PhD student I have to read and write lots and lots and lots and lots about it. So
0: <laughs> yeah, Of course. But yeah, we don't always, we don't intuitively make the connections that you have, but absolutely that there, we destroyed everything in one sweep when we decided to put white men in charge. That's, I mean, if you see the movie Pocahontas, they, mm. they really lay it out there. These white men are dangerous. No one go near them. And please, white men listening to this, we love you, but we got some work to do. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, no, they, I don't
1: know if we, anybody I mean, actually made a decision. I think that decision <laughs> was made for and in spite yeah. of what our other wishes might have been.
0: It's true. Very um, much so. Yeah. Pointing that out. <laughs> yeah, but I mean we, we you know the the white so I shouldn't say we put the white men in charge. The white men put themselves in charge. And everything that wasn't a white man got the axe, ranging from women to people of color to people with disabilities to LGBTQIA people to trees and animals. It's yeah, I, yeah, I like, mean it, it's all tied together.
2: Legal legacy that yeah that we are um we all suffer under, right? We suffer in different ways and in uh, unequal ways, but it, it harms all of us, um, this system that we have. And, and the, the nature of these dualisms that sort of define the human in contrast to something else, the way that they work is to try to hide their construction, you know, to try to hide that this is how it's being defined, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in in ways that make it all the more difficult to try to unravel. um, Because if you can, if if the, if the dualism is hidden, if the ways that, you know, the, the, the white um, Christian male is, you know, propped up on the you know, standing on, pushing down uh, everyone else. If that is hidden, it's it's harder to undo. It's harder to acknowledge that it even exists. And and so it's it's really insidious. Um, and um, yeah. So that's you know one of the things that I get excited about is is trying to help you know folks make those connections. Um, and and for me that has. You know, I've been working for the last few years. Uh, my advisor at Drew connected me with this really fantastic organization called Creature Kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, my first year of my PhD program I was able to get a fellowship with Creature Kind, which is a uh, Christian organization that focuses on the liberation of animals, people, and the earth. It's got a very intersectional approach. Um, the director, um, Alini Silva, um, a queer woman of color uh, pastor really helps to uh, lead the way in this kind of intersectional approach. And now I'm in the position of coaching other fellows that are um, engaging in projects, trying to think about how to be advocates for animals in this in this very intersectional way. Um, I think one of the big, you know, critiques a valid critique of um, folks kind of doing work with animals and creation and et cetera, is that it can be, it, it can at least have this image of being um, very white. It's for white people, it's for affluent people. And one of the reasons I love being in the organization that I'm in is that it, it really um, de-centers whiteness um, and uh, kind of centers the exciting places where creation care work and, and animals work is happening in the world. Um, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm really loving that.
0: Yeah, totally. I'd like to also
2: point out that
1: this work is deeply Wesleyan, because John Wesley was one of the first theologians that really um, started to create theology around animals and creation care, um, so yeah, it's, uh, I'm glad that you are um, continuing on that legacy there, that's pretty awesome, because mm-hmm. yeah, I've been thinking a lot about Doing some like a doctoral um, thesis about um, theology and climate change, and mm-hmm. that would be a significant portion is talking about um, animals and where they fit into this. So yeah,
0: thank you totally. That's and we don't cool. always yeah we don't always get good lessons from our ancestors. I think it's important to lift up the points where we do. You know yeah
2: absolutely. Uh, Wesley was pretty fascinating in that way, um, and mm-hmm. I you know I've always considered myself sort of you know a Wesley nerd but I'll admit like I was pretty late in coming to know about um, some of his writings that Mm -hmm. center animals and wondering about animals and like you know animal souls and what happens to animals in eternity and um, it's it's really interesting reading so if that's not if you know if you haven't read John Wesley's uh, sermon on the Great Deliverance. You know that's a great that's a great place to to go and learn a little bit more and uh, wonder about animals alongside Wesley. I think he's asking some really provocative questions. You know, and it's interesting because he was getting accused. Um, then you know he Wesley um, was kind of an on again off again vegetarian and. Um, you know, he was accused by some of his contemporaries of, of, of sort of, this, I mean, vegans and vegetarians stay here, people quoting some of the Bible verses about, you know, what are every, everything is permissible and what's, what we're restricted from and kind of those verses, stories that are about, like, meat sacrificed to idols and stuff get, you know, brought out. And Wesley wanted to be very careful about um, not, holding up anything as a, a standard that he went meant for others about what he was eating and not having any accusations of, like, um, pantheism, maybe not in those words exactly, but laid at his feet. So he was sort of on again, off again with his vegetarianism. But he was still, you know, a provocative thinker about animals. And mm-hmm. I, I think it, it can be really fun to draw on um, his work and his
0: heritage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, for the sake of saying it, I've so I've been involved in some in some kind of you know creation care passion since I was about twelve. I stopped eating meat at that age, and I have been vegetarian since then. I don't think that the two have to go together that in order to care about environmental justice, that you have to be a vegetarian. That's, you know, but that connection was there for me. Um, I I think it's, it's important for people to understand if they don't know that the meat industry is extraordinarily problematic for the environment and for the economy. There's just very, very deep injustice there. So if you're going to eat a hamburger, know where your hamburger is coming from and then make a responsible decision based upon that once I, and once I started down that rabbit hole of researching all of this stuff, it it just became like, okay, that's it. I'm not eating meat anymore. Um, But between how expensive meat is, how much energy it takes to make it, how unethical a lot of the labor practices are, how unethical it is that we treat animals that we process through these mills and then turn into hamburgers, Uh, You know, and then the health benefits that exist for vegetarianism. It kind of made my decision. Um, You know, it's, it's different. And I've served in congregations where I, where I've had members that have several months in the fall and winter that they hunt elk and turkeys And that's where their meat comes from. And I, I, you know, it's hard, I can't argue with them. You know, that's a much, that is a much more natural and much healthier way to put meat on your plate. And it's a lot more fair between you and the animal. Now, being the gun control and animal rights person that I am, I have to kind of say that I don't think hunting is totally just unless you're giving the deer a gun too. (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, we're not quite yeah. there yet.
2: <laughs> but you know? you're totally right, Natalie. I, you know, I served, you know, my last appointment before going back to school was in Governor in the North Country. Uh, you know, big, big hunting and farming communities. And, you know, in conversations with with folks, I would say, you know, very similar to what you're saying. You know, the, 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 the place where I find the most injustice is not in... You know, ethical hunting practices, and I have a I have a lot of respect for um, people who care to do that or find other ways to make sure that the food that they're eating is is ethical and just. Um, but I, I think a lot of people don't realize exactly the the industrial food mm-hmm. system um, that you know most of us participate in. And even as a you know even as a vegan, I still participate in that in the other food that I'm eating there's no perfect Mm -hmm. um, perfect ethical diet that avoids um every kind of injustice for sure um you know but what is the the role that I that I think I can play and it's always you know anytime we're talking about food it's such an intimate thing what we eat is a Mm -hmm. really intimate question and we're part of a culture that uh, has really terrible messaging about food, um, has so much shame. People have, have, of course, uh, uh, you know, from this system, um, so many challenges, um, body issues, self-image issues. Um, We think about um, disordered eating of, of so many different kinds. And so I try to be even as I'm an advocate for animals and as that leads me to make certain choices about my diet, I try to always be aware of and careful about um, presenting anything that I'm saying in a way that makes folks feel judged or like there's only one, like if you're not making this decision, Mm -hmm. you're clearly a terrible person. You know, that's like we, there's so many things that factor into Um, our relationship with food and um, the decisions that we make and you know what I hope to help people do is to you know think about consider look at just you know kind of push on the boundaries a little bit but never never hopefully in a way that makes people feel like you know gosh if you didn't come to the same conclusions that I did um, or aren't able to adopt the same practices that I have, that mm-hmm. you know, you're out somehow. Uh, because it, yeah. it's a really intimate, it intimate is. issue. Yeah.
1: One of the things that I've found about Americans in particular, um, and I think it's because we are so, in large part, we are really, really divorced from um, seeing the impacts. And this, we just do not understand the scale of the things that lead us to be able to live our lifestyle. We don't see, and this is actually a discussion I had to have with people when we were talking about um, what our policies are going to be in certain Niagara County towns around um, solar farms. I said, uh-huh. listen, people get sick and die of cancer in order for us to put gas in our cars. Uh-huh. And for us to heat our homes okay this is happening right now it's been happening you know the petroleum industry makes people sick it gives people cancer we know this and like the processes of refining chemicals can sicken communities because there's particulates that get released in that process so even if you're meeting epa standards it it still is a thing that can happen. You know, my father worked in an oil refinery for a long time. He's like, that's a risk that I knew that I would have to take if I was going to take this job. I knew that my risk of dying of cancer would go up. So, and then I was like, and if you put a solar farm next to your house, it might not look pretty, but you're not gonna die of cancer. You know, so, and it's the same thing with food. It's the same thing with the clothing, the stuff that's in our stores. You walk into Wegmans and there is an insane, like, logistical chain that allows us to have this absolute massive abundance Mm -hmm. in our grocery stores, in Walmarts or Targets. Um, The absolutely insane amounts of logistics that go on worldwide. And the suffering that goes into that animal and human suffering and planetary suffering mm-hmm. and we just do not understand because we are totally disconnected from it we do not see it happening in front of us yeah. so um people will come out and say oh well you could just you know live on this you can live on a hundred acres and be self-sufficient by yourself and like you don't understand like scaled agriculture and how much work that takes mm-hmm. or people say you can just, um, you know, oh, that's not really a big deal, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you really just don't understand the scale Mm -hmm. that it takes to maintain the lifestyle that we have. And if you want to live more simply, you're going to have to accept like some serious changes and serious changes to um, the way we generate energy, the way we um, eat our food, um, produce our food. Yeah. It's, it's uh, we just have like forgotten all of those things that people, Mm -hmm. I think, might have had a greater connection with in the past but Mm -hmm. um because they were closer to it but um yeah not anymore i would say Mm -hmm. probably since the 50s and 60s people have been able to externalize that away from their neighborhoods their minds very Mm -hmm. easily white people in particular so
0: yeah and it comes it comes at a huge cost and it also comes at a cost to people that are a lot closer to you than you think. When I was uh, serving in the Finger Lakes, I came much more face to face with this. It was the same time that I had parishioners that were hunting their own elk for dinner. But I was also out in vineyard territory and uh, your, and, and um, huge farms. And the, even as a vegetarian, I wanna say that I'm somehow removing myself from the unethical things that happened to that cow to turn it into a hamburger, but it was migrant workers that picked my vegetables that made my salad and they were, they have not had their immigration process treated with respect. They have not been treated with respect. They have not been paid according to their skill and worth. And I'm, my hands aren't clean of that either. And they are not way, 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 far, far, far away. They are right here in upstate New York. There are, migra- there are many migrant workers right in the Finger Lakes that are picking our livestock, that, that are picking the vegetables, that are you know preparing all of our food, that are then sending it right off to Wegmans or that are picking and squishing those grapes and then turning them into that bottle of wine that you can buy when you go on your fancy wine tour. And it's right there.
2: Yeah, when I was in, um, I guess my first year of college in Ohio, I, I took a class that was titled like suffering or something like that. I don't know why I ended up taking a class called suffering. Uh, but one of the things that we did was we visited migrant workers in mm-hmm. Ohio, you know, very near where I was going to school. And I had no idea idea that I, I was seeing the the living conditions of the families of you know workers of all ages we're living in i i just i thought how can this be how can this be the system that we have how can this be um uh, what we're relying on and it is another thing that is it is hidden. The enormity of our food systems and and energy systems and <laughs> systems of civilization in general allow so much to be hidden, um, just for, for for practicality's sake, hidden from everyday view. And and when things are hidden, um, so much injustice can can be taking place. It's mm-hmm. it's really shocking. It's really shocking.
0: Yeah yeah and it seems like the two biggest things that that it takes to change things is is education um and then just put and then just putting things out there no more allowing people to no more allowing injustices to hide under a veil and no more allowing people to sort of to, to either not look at the truth or compartmentalize it
1: that's so interesting that you say that because the i We have seen a lot of things exposed Mm -hmm. in the last couple of years. And um, there has been like, not only no will to change those things, there has been the opposite. Yeah. And um, so to me, to some extent, somebody said recently, it's like, we used to say, Oh, it's, it's because they don't know. They don't know. And she's like, Oh, they know now they don't care. And that's, you know, a lot of people say the cruelty is the point. And yikes what does that mean for the future of the church or the future of this country the cruelty is the point
2: yikes guys like what do we do with that i think there's always when we experience you know cognitive dissonance this Uh separation between what we believe and what we are doing um you know we we have the option of trying to change what we're doing to, to come in line with what we say we believe, or we change what we believe to conform to what we're already doing. And we like to think that what we do is change our actions to conform to our beliefs. But humans much, are much more likely to do the other, <laughs> the other direction, to change our beliefs to conform with our practices. And And that's just, you know that's um, a truth. But I think that's for me, the place of the church is to be a, a community where it's okay to acknowledge the disparity between what we believe and what we do. And I think that's one of the first problems we have is we we like to pretend that there is no disparity between what we say we believe and what we do. But I think church, at its best, can be a community where, we acknowledge that the the sinfulness, right, of having the disparity between what we believe and what we do, mm-hmm. and then together work to to bring our actions into conformity. And we're we will never achieve complete, you know, complete um conformity that's you know that's going on to perfection in this lifetime, right? We, we're, we're doing, we're in process, but we're never at the destination. But I think when we can support each other in that hard work, instead of telling each other we've already arrived, uh, that really transformative things can happen. I I hope, I hope. Mm
0: -hmm. I hope so too. I hope so too. Excellent
2: words,
1: thank you.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So the note, Beth, that I always like to end these interviews on, that we, you know, that our beloved final question is, if there was one thing that you could tell the world about God, what would it be?
2: Uh, That's a great question. And um, what comes to mind is uh, when I was a new pastor, uh, we would take rotations uh, as chaplains, at the hospital in Oneida. That's where I was serving in Oneida. And in the manual, it said, um, I don't know who wrote the manual, but it said, um, stop trying to defend God. God can defend herself. And, which I thought was wild for a little Oneida manual for clergy of all, all stripes in town. Uh, but I really, that's stuck with me ever since then. You know, stop trying to defend God. God can defend herself. And to me, uh, that says, you know, we, t- we try to know God and um, pin down God a lot, box God in. when I hope that maybe we wonder more, wonder about God and don't have to worry so much about defining God because God can defend herself.
0: And I, I, uh, I am delighted to hear a feminine pronoun for the divine. Yes. Yeah. For, I,
2: I'm delighted too.
0: <laughs> and for, you yeah. know, anybody who questions the importance of calling someone by their chosen pronouns, call God she and watch the reactions.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs>
0: yes. Yeah. Oh, it's been a delight to talk to you, Beth. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us.
2: Thank you for the invitation and the great conversation. I feel like we could just chat for, for hours. But uh, mm-hmm. for our for the listeners' sake, <laughs>
0: the- oh yeah, 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 no, of course, and we'll and we'll be in touch, of course. But yes, no, and really, thank you for the work that you're doing. It's world changing.
2: Thank you, and thank you for the work that you're doing. I love this this space and uh, the voices that you're inviting in
0: yeah no it's been it's been nothing but it, it, it has been fun it has been joyous it has been good challenge it's just been wonderful great yeah I love it. so anyway great. peace and love to you
1: thank you blessings thank you
0: Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers is produced by Natalie Bowerman, Emily Hugie, and Jessica Glazer.